This morning we want to look at the third in our series. We've been in a series um, dealing with uh, the five solos of the Reformation. And while I was gone, um, Dave uh, Bullen taught a little bit about the Reformation, some of the suffering that these uh, martyrs went through. Just a very moving message and historically based. And Thank him for that. And um, last week we had Ken Needham here. And so we're getting back into this series. And just as far as a way of, of review, remember what we've been over. We've talked about these five solas. And the first one was Sola Scriptura, the Bible alone. And we spent um, a whole hour dealing with that. And then we looked at Solus Christus, Christ alone. And today we're going to be looking at uh, Sola Gratia, which means um, grace alone. And so we want to be reminded that um, in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, it tells us this. It says, He saved us, God being that He God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. One thing that I'm reminded of when I was younger, uh, even probably even before junior high school, we had um, several neighbors that were kind of off and distant um, on our, our property, and the people would live up in the hills. And, and I remember there was one teacher, her name was Mrs. Lewis, and she had this beautiful home up in the hills, uh, kind of a mile or so away from our house. And... Um, my brother, Johnny, used to help her with the pool. She had a pool, so that was pretty neat back there. And um, he used to clean her pool for her, and he knew her, and he, she was one of his teachers. And I remember the day when she called me and said, would you be interested in a job? And I thought, well, what kind of job is this? And she said, well, I just need somebody to work here and help me. Um, could be pulling weeds. It would be cleaning the pool. It could be doing a lot of different things. And I said, definitely, I'm interested in a job. I would think I was 12 or 13, 14, something like that. So I couldn't go out and get a regular job. And I remember going over there, packing my lunch, hiking over there through the woods, getting to her house. And the first day, she said, see that, that driveway out there with all the, the rock? It, was like a, it wasn't a paved driveway. It was just rock. And she said, see all those weeds? Well, guess what? <laughs> I want them all gone. And I'm looking at this, and it just, see, I mean, she had a long driveway, okay? And she goes, don't feel you got to finish it today. And I'm like, really? I mean, you know. Uh, so I remember for days, if not weeks, going to work with my lunch over there in the humidity of the hot Pennsylvania summer, sitting there in her driveway, pulling out painstakingly all these crazy weeds that were growing in her driveway. And I'm kind of a perfectionist mentality, I guess you might say. So I want everything done. So I, I couldn't let one little weed just go, you know. So it was very a very thorough weeding of her driveway that she paid for. But I remember sitting there in that hot sum 
uh, summer, the sun and the humidity and everything. And then I remember hearing her, her children, or were grown at the time, uh, playing in the pool. And I thought, oh, that pool looks so good, <laughs> you know. And it was just, but, you know, I, I did this for several weeks. And um, finally, I guess I proved myself. And she, 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 you know, she would pay me at the end of each day. And I remember at the end of the first day, I probably finished an eighth of her driveway, but I felt pretty good about what I did, and she was pleased. And so she gave me what probably ended up being about two bucks an hour. And uh, I thought, wow, I got money. This, I earned this money. And I remember walking home thinking, man, this is, this is good. I like this, you know. And I, I say that to say this. We all have probably had similar experiences, you know, um, we, we go to work, we hopefully enjoy what we do. Um, and even if we don't enjoy what we do, we know that at the end, whether it's at the end of the week or every two weeks, someone's going to hand you something for doing what you do. There's some kind of pay involved. And in America, that's just, you know, ingrained into us. And so I say all that to say this, when we come to the Christian message of grace and grace alone, that flies in the face of everything that we have been taught and brought up with. And, and it's a very hard concept to understand. Even as a Christian, it's hard to understand sometimes. Um, somebody said when we use the term grace alone, what we mean is that our salvation from the wrath of God, our deliverance from hell is because of something good in God and not because of anything good in us. See, that, that flies in the face of what people think today when it comes to salvation. A couple truths here I just want you to focus in on before we actually get into the, the, the outline here. Grace means that there's something good in God. It has to. But secondly, grace means there's nothing, nothing whatsoever good in us. Everything we believe about God's grace may be comprehended in those two statements. That there's something good in God, and we all confess that. But I think the second part, that there's nothing good in us. I don't know about you, but my pride kicks in and thinks, well, now wait a minute. <laughs> There's some things that are good in me. And it sounds almost too harsh, that statement that there's nothing good in us. It sounds too judgmental. It sounds too negative, you might say. How can we say that there's nothing good in us? Do all good people go to heaven? If you have a problem understanding this concept, you're not alone. I read some statistics this past week, and one survey said 84% of evangelical Christians agreed with the statement that says, when it comes to salvation, God helps those who help themselves. Let me say that again. 84% of professing Christians believe in the concept that God helps those, when it comes to salvation, God helps those who help themselves. Another statistic which I found alarming was 49% agreed that there are other ways to come to God besides Jesus Christ alone. Now, this isn't just people on the street. These are professing Christians. 
34% of evangelicals, mind you, say yes to the proposition that all good people go to heaven. They would affirm that statement. And yet when we look at the Bible, when we look at Romans chapter 3, we've been through this, but let's just kind of reacquaint ourselves with Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. Paul makes a very wide-sweeping statement, a very authoritative statement. He says there's none, no one righteous, not even one. Not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. But he says, all have turned away. They have all together become, look at that word, worthless. <clears throat> There's no one who does good, not even one. You notice there, he injects that little phrase, not even one, twice. Because I'm sure his readers would say, well, well wait a minute, you know, I'm sure he has other people in mind. <laughs> I mean, me, you know. But no, he says, nobody. Those words can't be avoided. Brothers and sisters, they're in the word of God. Paul penned them for a purpose. He wanted us to understand that there's no one righteous. That there's no one who understands. That there's no one who seeks God. There's no one who does good. Not even one. Now you might... Not agree with those words, but at least you must admit that the Apostle Paul is clear in his statement. He's not leaving any wiggle room. He's indicting humanity right across the board. Total depravity. We know that that's the doctrine of total depravity. And something within us just kind of rises up and says, well, wait a minute. That can't be true. Not everybody. But that's exactly what Paul says. Here's the simple truth. See, unless we grasp our true condition, unless we understand who we truly are as human beings, we will never understand what God's grace is all about. You can't. It's impossible. Well, what does this doctrine of grace alone mean? Sometimes we define grace as unmerited favor, the unmerited favor of God. We've heard that. We don't deserve it. It's something that he gives to us that we don't deserve. And that's okay. That's a good definition. But it it doesn't really go far enough because grace really is the contrary to merit favor of God. In other words, he's giving you something you definitely don't deserve and you don't merit it. Because I knew when I was pulling weeds for Mrs. Lewis that, you know what, this would merit me some money. I wasn't over there just to help my neighbor. (laughs) That wasn't my idea of fun. I wanted pay for the work that I did. And I felt I merited it. See, God's grace is that in him which causes him to reach out to guilty sinners who deserve what? Deserve death, deserve hell. And then he showers his grace upon us. And the cross makes that all possible. See, don't think of it this way. 
Some Christians think of it this way. Well, we were spiritual zeros, and God kind of pulled us over into the plus column. That's not really a good example. We're stuck in the eternal minus column. We can't get out of it. We have a deficit. And seeing our minus column condition, God transfers us from eternal minus to eternal plus. Grace means, first of all, that salvation starts with who? starts with God. It has to. It doesn't start with man. He's the one who takes the initiative. He's the one who makes the first move, the Bible says. If God didn't make the first move, guess what? None of us would be here. We wouldn't come to him. We would never make a move toward God. Some people think that grace means, well, we do our part and God does his. But that's not true. We have a, especially in our country, we have this can-do mentality, which is good. The can-do spirit of the American people is is a wonderful thing. It's a great blessing. It's gotten us through some very dark times. But I just want you to know that when you apply that can-do mentality to your own salvation, it's not a blessing. It's a deadly poison. Grace means we owe everything to God. But what if someone asks you this question... Well, don't I have a part to play? And I read this example, I think, a couple weeks ago when Harry Ironside was um, asked that question. And somebody rose up within his service to give his testimony. And he talked about all that God had done for him. And somebody said, well, what was your part? And the man said, well, my part was to run away from God as fast as I could. And I kept running until he finally caught me. (laughs) That's our part in salvation. See, grace teaches us that only our part in salvation, the only part we have is to do the sinning and the running away from a God who wants to love us and save us. He does all the rest. Well, what is the the true condition of man? What is the true human condition? We've seen that already in the verses we looked at. But let's look at a couple other verses. Over in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul already told us there's none righteous, but in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, the Bible says that before we come to Christ, before we're saved, we were so dead that only God can make us alive. He says in Ephesians 2, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, verse 3, among whom we were all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of what? Wrath, like the rest of mankind. 
So Paul, in Ephesians 2, 1, basically tells us that we were so dead that only God could save us. Only God could make us alive. There was no hope outside of his wonderful salvation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the Apostle Paul once again says there, he says, in their case, the God of this world has what? Blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Before we came to Christ, we were so blind that only God could give us sight. Only God could give us sight. See, it's not about taking the Bible and trying to figure it out and one day, you know, I got it, I got it. No. Without the Spirit of God quickening your mind, without the the, the Father himself drawing you, you're not going to get it. Because it is something that God does. Well, the third thing here, before we were saved about our condition, we were so sinful that only God could forgive us. Only God could forgive us. In Psalm 51, verse 5, it says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So that indicates that from the very beginning, it's not that you're born and you get bad. You're born bad. (laughs) Okay? You're born sinner. The little babies, they're sinners. You don't have to teach a little baby to misbehave. They just naturally misbehave. Okay, why do they do that? Because they're sinners. Only God can change someone like that. Only God can forgive someone like that. In Jeremiah 17, 9, the Bible tells us very clearly that the heart is deceitful above all things. Notice it doesn't say some things. It doesn't say most things. It says all things. And it's desperately sick or evil. Who can understand it? The idea is nobody but God. We are so bad that only God can make us good. See, this is the true condition of who we are as humans. And this is a blanket statement across mankind. In Luke 19.10, the Bible says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save who? The lost. We were so lost that only God could save us. There was no other hope. That's why Christ came. He lived. He died. He rose from the dead. He paid the price for our sin. So that we could be saved. So that we could have reconciliation. We could be brought back to the proper position in our relationship with our God and Creator. But it's only through God's forgiveness. It's only through God making us good. In Jeremiah 13, 23, it tells us that we are so helpless that only God could change us. And he uses this illustration, and I think it's interesting. He says, can an Ethiopian change his skin? Or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good. Who are... Then also... Who can do good, who are, who are accustomed to do evil. Alright, the idea is, is that we're so helpless. There's no help within ourselves. We're so helpless that only God can change us. God needs to transform us. See, and that's the, the misnomer a lot of times, even within Christianity. 
When people speak of salvation, when people speak of getting saved, what do they talk about? Well, they're just, they're taking their life as they know it to be now, and they're just simply adding Jesus to the mix. Okay, well, I'll go to church once a week. I'll pray before meals. I'll crack my Bible open once in a while and read a verse here or there. And somehow they feel that that makes them a Christian. That somehow that that's, that's what that transformation is all about when it's not. It's something that God has to do from within us. Very clearly, the, the heart is deceitful, he says, above all things. Well, who can change that? Only God can. God has to transform us. So in short, without Jesus, we're sinful, lost, helpless, hopeless, doomed. We're damned to hell forever and ever. That's what the Bible says. And you know what? There's nothing in us worth saving. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. And you know what? If God doesn't do something, we're in big trouble. Because we will not be saved. And that's the true condition of every man, every woman, born on this planet. And it kind of paints a bleak picture. But that's what's so wonderful about God's grace. Because what does the Bible say about God's grace? Well, the Bible teaches us that God's grace is part of his basic character. See, it's not something that he just adds to himself. No, it's who he is. We serve a gracious God. He could no more be ungracious than he could be unjust. It's part of his attributes. It's who he is as a being. And because God is gracious, because God does willfully give his grace, give good things to those who don't deserve it, because he's gracious and the human race is sinful, you have to understand that grace must always come from where? It has to come from above. It's not going to come from within you. It's not going to come from someone by you. It's going to come from above. It starts with God. And it comes rolling down to man like a mighty ocean and overwhelms his soul. Please understand, grace never starts with mankind. It always starts with God. It has to. It comes down from him and it reaches out to us where we are. And that's why grace is free. There's no, we don't have to pay anything for it. We hear that term sometimes, and it's confusing. We hear the term free grace. You ever heard that? Well, I think it's a redundant term. Because grace in and of itself is free. If grace isn't free, guess what? It's not grace. If God somehow says, well, you know what? I want to I save you by my grace, but... Guess what? You got to do this, you got to do that. You got Ah, that's not grace. If you have to pay for it or you have to do anything to earn it or you have to somehow deserve it or even if you have to do something later on to prove 
that you really have it. That's not grace at all. Grace is free to us. It costs us nothing. That's why Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says that it's a gift of God. It's not from us, lest we boast about it. Grace is the reason why God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world. John 3, 16, for God what? So love the world. What did He do? He gave His only begotten Son. It doesn't say He charged us for His only begotten Son. It says He gave His only begotten Son. I think some Christians today have this in their mind, even in the back of their mind. Somehow they feel that God was obligated to send Jesus into the world to save us. That he had to do it. See, the only obligation God has is to act consistent with his own nature. That's the only obligation he has. And see, he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, because you know what? That's the kind of God he is. He's a gracious God. He wants us to know Him. He wants us to grow in our relationship with Him. Not only does He save us by grace, but He keeps us saved by grace. He gives us more grace each and every day. So what's the difference? What does this this mean for us, practically? Does this make any difference? By grace alone. Well, first of all, it destroys all human self-confidence, which may be not a happy message for you. Because we live in such an age today, in such a society, it's all about, what? Self-confidence, it's all about self-esteem. It's all about self-worth, my rights. We hear about this over and over and over again. I don't know how else to say this, but other than to just say, you know what, in the biblical sense, there is no such thing as self-esteem or self-confidence. In the biblical sense. Instead, the Bible teaches us to have what? God-esteem. To have confidence in who? To have confidence in God. Now, I know that we kind of make that a gray area. But the Bible says that apart from God... There's no firm ground for self-esteem or self-confidence. This past week, they had the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C. And I was watching it. And Rear Admiral Barry Blake, I believe his name is, the chaplain for the Senate, got up and delivered the keynote message. And if you have an opportunity, go online if you haven't heard it yet. And he listened to his message. Amazing message. Very Christ-exalting. As a matter of fact, he ended his message with part of this hymn. He says, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on 
Jesus' name. And he went on to proclaim what that hymn says, On Christ the solid rock I stand. And I'm thinking, am I watching this? I mean, this is the National Prayer Breakfast. You know, where, where's everybody else who's going to get up and kind of give their two cents? It wasn't. Christ was proclaimed boldly. And I thought, wow, what a blessing that is. See, outside of Jesus, there is no hope. Outside of Jesus, there's no ground for any lasting self-confidence at all. The Bible, or the, the hymn says, all other ground is what? Sinking sand. Have you ever been in sinking sand? I mean, it's fun for a couple minutes, but then, you know, when the sinking sand gets up around your ankles, you get, you get a little panicky. You're thinking, wow, this is kind of tough to get out of. It can be kind of scary. So, this basically takes away all human confidence. Secondly, God's grace frees us from having to win God's favor. Have you ever thought about that? When you come to Christ, you know, even if you, you know, when you come to Christ and God saves you and you're part of the, 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 the body of Christ, and do you realize that you don't have to do anything to continue to earn God's favor? That you already have God's favor? You don't have to win God's favor. You already have it. I mean, think about it. When you, know, when you joined the football team when you were in high school or the baseball team or whatever, I mean, maybe you were you know, the first pick. But you know what? If you didn't play, <laughs> right, what happened? You did not stay in favor with everybody. I'm sure a lot of people were upset with uh, Curry's missed layups last night. Phenomenal player. Basic shot. But I was told he missed it. Okay? You can be the best of the best, but you know what? You have to continue to stay there. You have to continue to earn it. See, it's not that way with salvation. Because God is gracious. We don't have to do things in order to make Him gracious. Isn't that a wonderful truth? See, that liberates us, that sets us free from that endless cycle of of trying to do more, do more, to try to earn God's favor. And maybe if I just do enough, I'll pacify God somehow. See, grace means that God loves us eternally and he showers his kindness upon us indefinitely. So we don't have to win God's favor. We already have it if we're under his grace. Thirdly, God's grace enables us to serve God without fear. Have you ever thought, well, you know, I'm just not praying enough. Oh, I'm not studying my Bible enough. I'm not witnessing enough. I'm not serving enough. I need to do more because I've got to make God happy. That's a lie. Not that we don't want you to serve more. Not that we don't want you to study your Bible more, pray more, do all those things. All those things are good things. But you don't do those things in order to earn God's favor. See, that's what I call falling into the, 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 the performance mode of Christianity. You've got to act a certain way. You've got to uh, be a certain way. You, you, you have to play the part. Because if we don't, well, God will somehow be mad at us. 
See, grace allows us to serve God without fear. If it wasn't for the grace of God, trust me, I would never do what God has called me to do. Never. I, I wouldn't take a chance. Because I thought, wow, you know, just one little mess up, God's going to squash me like a bug or whatever. But when you come to the throne of grace and you realize, you know what? We're all in this together. We're all serving the same God. His grace is sufficient for all of us. It allows us to serve God without fearing that somehow we're not doing enough. And it allows our proper motivations for serving Him to be right and not wrong. The last thing we want is a bunch of people serving Christ within our church, doing it out of guilt. We don't want that. God doesn't want that. We want people that want to serve Christ and serve God, not out of fear, but because he's blessed them with salvation and they can't help but serve him because they realize that God, even before the foundation of the world, prepared good works for us to do once we were saved. See, if you fall into that performance mode of Christianity, please know that that will never make you happy because you'll never be able to do enough. You'll never be able to do enough. On the other hand, if you understand that God accepts you on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for you, then you know what? You can kind of relax. Because you know that God looks at you like a little child. He's pleased with you. He isn't up there trying to figure out ways to mess you up and, you know, break you down. He wants to build you up. He wants to bless you. Well, the fourth thing grace does, grace takes the pressure off in our witnessing. What do I mean by that? It takes the pressure off. God's grace takes the pressure off us when we witness. I went to a college that taught the whole evangelism explosion thing. And so you learned all these techniques of how you share the gospel. And then when they ask a question, you divert it back to this. And if you can get them to pray this little prayer at the end of the little track, then you've succeeded. And you put that little check on your thing and you go back to the camp. And how many did you say? Well, I say five. You know, how many guys did you get to pray the prayer? And it was, it was purely guilt. And it wasn't anything to do with the grace of God. You were trying to talk people into something, almost like a used car salesman. And you know what? When I came to understand God's grace, when I came to understand that that even affects the way that we witness, when someone at the coffee shop brings up the subject of a spiritual nature, I don't feel the necessity to close the deal. I just let the conversation naturally go forth. And it gives me the opportunity to say, well, why are you asking this question? And they get to know me a little bit better. And then we begin to eventually get around to answering their question. Sometimes they respond affirmatively. Sometimes they don't. But you know what? It doesn't bother me. Because I'm under God's grace. It's God's job, beloved, to save the lost. That's his job. We don't save people. God does. And I think the, the, the sooner we understand that basic truth, 
the easier we'll sleep at night. Now, we should be zealous for souls. The Bible says that he who wins souls is wise. We should shed tears for the lost. We should make appeals. We should be fervent in our preaching with urgency in our heart to call men and women and children to repentance before a holy God. But in the end, we can't change the human heart. That's a work of God. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. Now, grace alone is not a popular doctrine today. It's never been popular with unregenerate men. Yet it's entirely biblical. Because no one can be saved without God's grace. Our salvation depends entirely on God. You contribute nothing to your salvation. Even your faith is a gift from God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says, By grace you have been saved through faith. And then it says, And this is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Notice those three words in that verse. The first part of the verse, grace, saved, faith. Then you notice that word this in the second part. Well, what's it talking about? Is it grace? Is it saved? Is it faith? What is it? The answer is yes. It's all three. Because grace is not of yourself. Salvation is not of yourself. And you know what? Even the faith to believe is not of yourself. Martin Luther put it in a very colorful way this way. He says, God creates faith in the human heart the same way that he created the world. He found nothing and created something. Sometimes we sing that old hymn, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Notice that line, nothing in my hand I bring. That's why we need grace alone. We come to a holy God with empty hands, or we don't come at all. We need God's grace because without it, our hands will always be empty. And so we see how these five solas begin to mesh together because it's on the basis of the Bible alone that we know that our salvation is in Christ alone and that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. I said earlier, doesn't God want good people in heaven? No. He wants bad people in heaven. That's why he sent a savior. Romans 4, 5 says, Now to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. See, God saves people who give up trying to save themselves. That's who is truly saved. I remember hearing the gospel message thinking, wow, okay, there's something I got to do here. There's something, well, there's nothing I could do. And it wasn't until God touched my heart and showed me my own sinfulness that I cried out for the Savior to save me. 
God saves people who give up trying to save themselves, but God saves the ungodly, listen, while they are still ungodly. Do you understand that? We fight against that. Sometimes we think that only God wants these good people in heaven. So what do we try to do? We try to spend our lives trying to be good enough to get there. God doesn't want good people in heaven. He wants bad people in heaven so that by saving bad people, he can demonstrate the greatness of his grace and his love and his forgiveness for us. So many times we think, well, you know what? We need to clean up our act and then God will save us. Or we even think that God is saving. You know what? Saying this, I'll clean, I'll clean up your act and then I'll save you. Well, the scriptures doesn't indicate that he says anything like that. He says something entirely different. He says, I'll save you while you are still dirty. And then I'll help you clean up your act. God says, while you're still dirty, while you're still sinful, I'll give you the righteousness of my own son, Jesus Christ. See, that's what justification is all about. That's what grace is all about. God is giving us his son's righteousness, even though we don't deserve it, even though we're steeped in our sin. And when you come to Christ still dirty and unclean, not only does he save you, but he begins that inner process of sanctification. And he cleanses you from the inside out. I think sometimes that we forget from whence we were saved. God wants us to understand clearly that it's only by grace that we're saved through faith, it's not of ourselves. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. It's a free gift of God. Father, we pray this morning, if there's any here who have yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ alone, by grace alone, that you would move, that you would work, that you would minister as only you can, draw them to the Savior, show them their need, Show them their inability to save themselves. Show them their own worthlessness before a holy God. That we can only cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. When we conclude that we're a sinner and we're in need of God's mercy, then we are at a point in time where we can ask God to save us. Because then and only then will we understand his grace. The idea that he will give us something that we will never deserve. His forgiveness through Christ. As believers, Lord, I pray we would leave this, this building today with that message on our lips. Knowing that when we share the gospel, when we live the gospel amongst a lost and dying world. That we can be a picture of God's grace to them. That even within our families, we can be a picture of God's grace to one another, the way we speak to one another, the way we treat one another. Lord, we ask that you would move and work in our hearts. Draw us closer to you 
and like you in every way. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.